If you're going to be two-faced, at least make one of them pretty. Marilyn Monroe Chapter 20 I tended to think of sleep as something healing, freshening, and cleansing. I traced this somewhat peculiar notion to parental influence. I distinctly remembered, though I couldn't have been more than four at the time, waddling after my mother one golden Saturday morning as mom carefully demonstrated how to achieve hospital corners, the precise folding of sheet around mattress, the hands that most often held a sheaf of inky-smelling mimeographs or art supplies smoothing the linens taut. This is how you make a bed. She lifted the corner of the mattress. Want to try? I repeated the motions of my mother. What's a hospital? I asked. If you're sick, it's a place to go to get better. Bed, then, was obviously a place to go to get better. One late evening after post-production was complete, I received a call from Cooper, and quite an earful. Fucking great! Locked and loaded! Thank you, Billy! Producer Billy! <laughs> he let out a boozy laugh. Thank you, me! Have you been drinking? Come join me! Billy! He uttered my name as if coming to a startling revelation. Come join me. Cooper, I have to go to bed. Do you know what time it is? Time for you to have some champagne. After a frustrating and rambling chat with Cooper about the hantavirus, life, Pearl Jam, the bigwigs we had spotted at the Information Superhighway Summit at UCLA, and whether or not we should take off to Vegas, right now, to celebrate over my dead body, because there were other more serious questions to address, such as, where was Sylvie? Asleep? Was the nanny also drinking champagne? 58-year-old matronly Rosa was not. According to a bibulous and ebullient Cooper, Rosa had clucked something like, Esta barato como una cuba, rough translation, drunk as a skunk, before drawing herself up to her full five-foot height and retiring to her room some hours ago. I hung up the phone. Cooper and I were those rare single parents who had salaried live-in assistants. My mother, I was sure, would have choice words about the impact of that on our children and the detrimental effects of said arrangement on our own characters. I wasn't even sure I disagreed. I glanced at the clock. It was 11.47 p.m., not exactly the wee hours by East Coast standards, but for someone who toiled in the film industry, it was unconscionably late. After the nearly two-hour call, I ran my hand back and forth over the pillows on my bed like I was stroking the cheek of a beloved confidant. Jake was fast asleep. I assume Mr. Booker was also. I slipped beneath the sheets. For some reason, I had recently been thinking a lot about my relationship with my mother. Mother Price was very intrigued by all things Japanese in the early 1960s, when she was an art teacher, long before becoming an administrator. I remembered newspaper clippings of my mom creating exotic floral arrangements, yellowing with the passing of years. Stretching as far back as my memory could go, I recalled handleless cups coming off my mom's potter's wheel and my own pudgy toddler hands sunk into slip or poked into cool mounds of clay. At any rate, mom always told an apocryphal tale about my birth. 
Apocryphal. Adjective. Of doubtful origin or authenticity. Secondary definition. Much of my mother's tales of the past. She said, instead of the medications of the day that they handed out for labor, she had opted for a natural childbirth and self-hypnosis, which for my mom meant doing an entire Japanese tea ceremony in formal kimono in her head. She said she didn't feel a thing when the ceremony was over, and then there I was. Mom told the story with asides and delicate specific details about the flip of her sleeve, or the whisking of the imaginary tea. She also told me she conversed constantly with me as an infant and added that I started answering at six months, which I always thought was complete hooey. I believe babies mimicked cadence, but it wasn't talking. Now that I was lying in bed thinking about it, I was no longer so sure. One of the things I loved about Mr. Booker was his reading Jake the classics long before he could fully understand them. I wondered what kind of interior vocabulary Sylvie was picking up between the ever-present Spanish-speaking nanny and a director father who toted her from soundstage to editing bay. A memory came to me. Unlike the technicolor visual parade of my early childhood, it was in black and white and teetering on the brink of comprehension. It wasn't entirely visual. There was a sentence associated with the memory, the very first words I remember hearing. I was in a baby carriage. My mother was steering me down a sidewalk, canopied by trees and lined with shiny shop windows. We stopped in front of a window with a striped awning hung above and entered an ice cream parlor. Here's the sentence. It came in kind of a crooning sing-song. Do you see that? I see that. And I, not quite grasping what the words meant, or connecting them with what followed, saw glass cases, five-gallon tubs of ice cream, and a tiled floor. Mom got a sugar cone and took a lick of glossy black ice cream. Super shiny, intensely black ice cream. I'd never seen anything like it before or since. Wait, there was no before. This was my first inkling of awareness of being human. Pondering, I realized the only other person who could verify the experience was mom. Again, I looked at the clock. Four more hours to go before my mother would wake in Massachusetts. I hunkered down into bed and tried to sleep way before dawn in California, but knowing my mother would be making a pot of coffee at home, I picked up the phone. When I asked about her recollection, Mom, speaking crisply, gave me the location of the ice cream parlor. It had made way for a supermarket in 1967, said she was especially partial to licorice ice cream, and that she remembered taking me there the summer after I was born, placing me at six months old. Moral, don't ever argue with your mother. Life did begin with language. I got out of bed feeling neither freshened nor cleansed, nor was I at all healed, but I did feel entirely there. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, hospital corners. Many over-caffeinated hours later, Cooper called again. He told me he was at Caesars in Vegas. Caesars? 
I had visited once in the antediluvian era when I was screwing around with Dave. On a cross-country trip returning from Arizona, we drove through buttes and canyons and pines, ornate old mining towns with opera houses were pitched against the black hills. Deserts at sunrise contrasted towering spires of dark blue rock with wondrous golden light. And then we took a turn, hit a highway, threw a dusty basin, and arrived in Vegas. Gangster Bugsy Siegel was integral to the resort's inception. He plopped down the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in the midst of a sandy, flat, hot tract of land in 1946, to the tune of $6 million. His murderous associates all chipped in, and an escape route was designed from his suite direct to an underground garage where a car was always waiting, just in case. The city was designed to suit grifters, pimps, and gamblers, flashy, precarious, and exotically alien to its surroundings. For me, well, as you can see, for me, it was revulsion at first sight. Looking back to those early days, I realized things illicit were part of Dave's appeal. So in response, I, young and smiling, stood by at Caesars while Dave played cards and threw dice. The trip had taken place in the 1980s, but this, but the casino, it was clinging to a 60s aesthetic. The cocktail waitresses who handed free drinks to the high rollers were dressed in white pleated mini togas over showgirl corsetry. Atop their heads were blonde wigs that looked exactly like the oddity sported by yeoman Janice Rand, Captain Kirk's love interest, in the original Star Trek. Cooper was still talking, but I wasn't completely listening. I caught the particulars, something about packing up Jake and Mr. Booker as if they were furniture or crockery, and joining him. I was boiling mad. He hadn't been listening the night before. I hated the desert. I hated the heat. Las Vegas? Las Vegas was tainted. I didn't believe in its new incarnation as a respectable, family-friendly destination. That particular PR pitch was pure BS. It existed as a vacation destination based solely on its exploitation of vice. The seven deadlies instantly sprang to mind. Greed, lust, and gluttony were Vegas's headliners. I hated its strenuous attempts to inter its mob-happy past while retaining all the elegance of a pinball arcade. And he was still talking. The normally laconic Cooper was on a tear. Was he drinking again? Cooper? Billy, you should see this swimming pool. It's as big as a football field. I hate football. But you don't hate me. I wondered. Postponing the next phase of our relationship had become a habit of mine. Billy, relax. Come on. Maybe leave Jake at home with Mr. Booker. Let's just spend two days alone together. I can't. Monday is a school holiday. I promised Jake we could go see Adam's Family Values. Could Mr. Booker? No, I promised. I could hear the hurt in his voice as we said goodbye. I sat by the silent phone and thought... In June of last year, my world had gone rosy with romantic expectation. By January, the rose was faded and drooping, and it was my fault. Every time Cooper tried to revive the blossom, I stopped him. It didn't matter where he was. With a little hustle, I could be at Caesars in a matter of hours. And wasn't this, exactly this, 
what I had been waiting for? Mr. Booker could take Jake to the movies. He might even enjoy it. At any rate, Las Vegas didn't look nearly as ugly if you arrived by night when it was lit up in gaudy neon. There, I made up my mind. I felt flushed and happy and something unusual. I felt sexy. Cooper and I were going to be alone together, finally. I took a cab to LAX. Mr. Booker had been particularly quiet in parting. Jake had requested I return with a Game Boy, and feeling guilty about my sudden departure, I assured him Tetris would be in his immediate future. On the ride to Caesars from the airport, I tried to look at the strobe and the glitter of the strip with a new appreciation. Well, it was sparkly. I had to give it that. I checked into the hotel and was almost cheerful as the ping and clatter and electric hum of all those people playing all those games rang in my ears. No, it wasn't a nasty compulsive din. It was, it was exciting. These people were having fun. Cooper told me to relax and God damn it, I was going to. I stepped to the bar and ordered a Bloody Mary. I felt fine. I'd never seen so many liquor bottles lined up in one place. Turning to look out over the casino, I noted a visual rhythm. It was artful. Glowing pools of light and jewel-toned accents were tossed through velvety darkness. My drink arrived at the very long bar. I stirred it with a celery stalk as my gaze fixed on someone familiar. A distance away, light sculpting his face, dressed entirely in black. He was bouncing a wine cork again and again on the bar in quick, precise motions. Cooper. There he was, doing what he always did, as compelling then as he was four years ago. Do you see that? I see that. I laughed and slid off the bar stool, thinking I'd found the one. When I stopped and stared. Cooper had turned towards someone about ten years younger than me. This silky young thing was radiant with attention. Her eyes were shining. She touched a smooth hand to her perfect throat. Then she tossed back her glossy hair, slid her hips this way and that, before leaning in and planting a kiss on Cooper's lips. He dropped the cork on the bar and raised his other hand to place it on her waist. I continued to observe. Now the two had their foreheads together, and the young woman, looking up slightly from under her lashes, was murmuring something in Cooper's ear. Their body language was loud and clear. I laid a $20 bill on the bar and walked away. I wove through the festive crowd, feeling crushed, exuding all the white-hot charisma of a garden gnome. So much for happy surprises. My head started to pound, and I had barely touched my drink. It felt like a slurry of concrete was thudding in my pulse instead of blood. I went up to my hotel room, cried to the point of hyperventilation in the marble-lined bathroom, calmed, brushed my teeth, and slowly packed my bag. I checked out of Caesars, took a cab to McCarran, and was back in L.A. roughly four hours from when I had left placing me in Beverly Hills 20 minutes past midnight on January 17th, 1994. Thanks for listening. 
If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.